Welcome, everyone, to Restorative Justice on the Rise. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and it's so great to be with you all again this Thursday evening. Join us every Thursday, most every Thursday, at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern for this live forum. It's a, a live public dialogue, sort of like a virtual town hall, discussing the aspects of restorative justice and beyond. We feature dialogue with people doing significant work in the field, ranging from well-known names to those equally important people that are behind the scenes every day working towards uh, a more restorative way of of approaching our justice system. And we know that we're in the midst of a huge transformation within our system. And I'm really looking forward to introducing to you and connecting with you all tonight with our very special guests who we'll be sharing with in just a moment and hearing more about their significant work. If you're interested in tuning in to the podcast and in looking into the archives um, from many of the years that we've had, uh, we've, we've been in, in um, into our series now for three seasons. And we're on the brink of upgrading our website. I know I've been talking about this for a while, but we're really, we've got something big planned for an iTunes podcast and a complete archive ranging from the dialogues that we've had with Arun Gandhi, Dominic Barter, Howard Zare, Kay Pranis, and so many other incredible folks in the field and beyond. Every now and then we also have dialogue with folks doing um, incredibly inspiring work in related fields of peace building, media making, and truth-telling. Truth so again, it's a pleasure and an honor to be with you tonight. Please check out restorativejusticeontherise.com and in the coming months you'll see a new face of the website. If you're so inclined, you can sign up for the podcast so that an email comes into your email box every time a new archive hits the podcast. Without further ado, tonight's guests, honored guests, have uh, an extraordinary contribution to this field of restorative justice and the justice dialogue in general. We're going to be enjoying a conversation tonight with both Deanna Van Buren and also Barb Toes. Deanna Van Buren is the founder and design director of Form Design Studio in Oakland, California, and she also is a recent Loeb Fellow at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. Her practice focuses on the investigation and application of design innovations to the punitive justice system and alternative forms of justice that embrace reparation. Recent projects include a peacekeeping room and design guidelines for restorative spaces in schools with restorative justice for Oakland youth, our joy, our friend Fanya Davis and her team over there that we've talked to on this series, and the design and construction of a peacemaking center with the Center for Court Innovation in Syracuse, New York. We'll be hearing more about all of that with Deanna and Barb in just a moment. And then uh, a few words about the amazing Barb Toes who has just an incredible array of contributions to this field as well. She's an experienced practitioner and educator in the field of restorative justice, and many of you, I'm sure, know of her little book of restorative justice for people in prison, Rebuilding the Web of Relationships. She holds an MA in Conflict Transformation and is also a Ph.D. candidate at Bryn Mawr College's Graduate School of Social Work and Social Research. Specifically, her research concerns the relationship between environmental design, especially that of correctional institutions, and psychosocial, behavioral, and judicial outcomes. And between the two of these amazing people, it's my pleasure to also share with you the recent news that the Fetzer Institute has awarded them a grant for the development of a pilot project called Designing Justice, Designing Spaces, Imagining an Alternative Future for Justice Architecture. 
So it's just an incredible honor to have you both with us tonight in this dialogue. And I wondered if one of you might like to start out by sharing a bit about what brought you into this extraordinary work that you do. Welcome. Sure. Excuse me. This is Barb. I can I can start by um, saying a little bit about that. I've been doing restorative justice work for just a little bit over 20 years. And when about 14 years ago, moved into doing restorative justice in correctional facilities. And um, a lot of that was doing education. So educating incarcerated men and women on restorative justice and seeing kind of what they wanted to do with it inside their own facilities. And the first time um, doing one of these workshops, which um, was about 24 hours over the course of several weeks, found out on the first day that um, we needed to kind of change how we talked about restorative justice in that particular environment. And um, worked with the men in this class to uh, work in metaphor, really, of um, first thinking about the criminal justice system as a boxing match and then changing the metaphor for when we talked about restorative justice and thinking about restorative justice as a room in which you could actually face um, what you, you needed to face. All these men had been incarcerated for a connection to a homicide in some way, so they were lifers. And we found that um, what they created just on newsprint as far as this room in which they could actually face the harms that they had caused was they decorated it with a big mountain window that, or a big bay window that had a mountain view and bookshelves and fish tanks and plants and comfortable chairs and a telephone and music. And it was just this gorgeous room. And I had always carried it in my head as kind of the image of a mountain lodge. And we found as we were having our workshop that when the men would become really resistant to um, being accountable to victims, or listening to um, the harms that victims had experienced, we would ask them, are you sitting in the boxing ring right now? And they would um, go, oh, yeah, yeah. And we'd, my co-facilitator and I, we would say, you know what, go to the do-no-harm room. If we you know, just metaphorically sit in this do-no-harm room, which is what we called the, the lodge that they had created, um, they actually were more open to the ideas of restorative justice. And that really got me thinking, um, about how the work that I was doing in prison and the values that supported that work was very different than um, the values that were showing up in the architecture of the prison. On one hand, this do-no-harm room with this lovely mountain view, they were more receptive to accountability than we thought about um, the criminal justice system and this, this prison environment that they were in. And that just really got me thinking you know, about architecture, about design, and how that can influence how people understand the world, other people, and relationships, and have now continued that um, into my studies and my current research, which I can tell you about a little bit later. So I really owe the inspiration to that group of 13 men in a uh, prison in Pennsylvania to get me on this journey. Mm. And when was that again, Barb? About 20 years ago? That would have yeah, that would have been in 2000 or 2001. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, and, I wish and, I still had that newsprint. <laughs> and Deanna, Deanna Van Buren, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Share with us a little bit <laughs> just to start off our conversation of what brought you into being so inspired by uh, the contribution that you're now making and anything else you'd like to share with us. Sure. Thank you, Molly. Um, I guess you know, I'm, I haven't been in the restorative justice business as long as Barb has. I, I heard about it for the first time maybe seven years ago uh, through Dr. Fania Davis, who many of you know. I, almost, it's almost seven years to the day. It was Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday in 2006. I'll never forget it. It was a big moment. Uh, and she got up on, on stage and she started to speak about restorative justice. And I think, you know, as an architect, I've been practicing for 10 years and all over the world in a lot of corporate, corporate situations. And in my heart, I had really been looking for a way for myself and others to be practicing design and architecture uh, for everybody. You know, I wanted to make a difference, and I didn't feel like a lot of the work I was doing was making a difference. So when I heard about restorative justice, I, I just really got goosebumps. I was incredibly inspired. and. 
I started to, to study it and, and study its architecture, its indigenous architecture. I started to try and go to conferences with restorative justice practitioners, anything that I could do to expose myself to that. And the more I, I looked at it, the more I realized that it sort of resonated with me because it mirrored my own journey of healing and forgiveness that I had I'd been through in my own life after my family desegregated a neighborhood when I was quite young. So it's really been a long journey and I was incredibly grateful to, to find a place that I felt I could start to apply some of the skills I learned. I, I had to think about that. I didn't know what role the architect could play in restorative justice and peacemaking. What could we possibly do? And then I started to look at the architecture that we have for justice. I was like, wow, we've got, we're spending $68 billion a year on this system. I think about 10% of that is spent on its infrastructure. Uh, on the prisons, on the jails, on the detention centers. Um, and that infrastructure looks like that punitive system. It looks, it looks like all the values manifesting in, in, in a building, you know, a very expensive building that starts to epitomize how we feel about justice. It's in our minds. I think we can all imagine what a courthouse looks like. So I, I decided, well, what does a restorative justice center look like? What does a peacemaking center look like? How can I start to support practitioners and programs with architecture? And I started to reach out. I reached out to Fania. Um, I reached out. Who was I reached out to the Center for Court Innovation many years ago. Uh, their Tribal Justice Division. I just tried to find anyone who would talk to me. And I went to them and I, I expressed my passion for this and how I felt that design could really uh, expand the impact of the program and it impacts the way we feel and uh, impacts healing. And they seemed to think that was true. And so I was able to start uh, doing projects with them uh, and starting prototypes. And, and then the work is still very new, uh, but it's been really exciting. I mean, I'm so grateful. I can't, I can't believe that I've been able to build a business doing this. And when I found about Barb, I was like, I heard about Barb from Sujatha, the Liga. And I emailed her, and Barb emailed me like five seconds later because I told her, I'm like, I'm a designer interested in restorative <laughs> justice. And she's like, I'm a restorative justice practitioner interested in design. And honestly, <laughs> ever, ever since then, um, it's been an incredible collaboration with her. Uh, I love working with Barb. She's uh, really invited me into this work in working in prisons and incarcerated men and women. And... Uh, it has been one of the more rewarding experiences of my life uh, to do that work and to really, as an architect and a designer, to say that this is one of the few types of buildings where we never access the stakeholders. We don't ask people inside institutions uh, to re-envision their spaces to be healing or reparative. They never get included. They don't ever get considered in that way for a lot of reasons that I'm sure you can imagine. So. Uh, this new project that we have uh, will be the first time that that's happening. So mm. it's, it's a great culmination at this point of the past seven years of my journey to get here. Wow. Well, I just want to say I, I'm noticing a lot of, of folks coming, still coming into the room tonight. Welcome. If it's your first time here tonight with us at Restorative Justice on the Rise, this is a live public dialogue circle open to everyone who's interested in joining the conversation. Our goal is for you to be able to feel connected with a, a community. It's a national community and it's an international community. We often have people from the United States and Canada and beyond show up for these live dialogues and a lot of folks from the uh, worldwide constituency and community are listening to the archives as well and tuning into the podcast. So in a little while, as many of you know, we start to open up to a conversation with everyone. If you would like to be a part of the conversation tonight with, with our guests, just press 1 on your telephone keypad. I also want to thank everybody for their pre-submitted questions. You can pre-submit questions during the registration process for this dialogue every Thursday um, or whenever it is that you sign up for the upcoming um, session. So. On the note of this new project, it's so exciting, Barb and Deanna, that, that uh, Fetzer is, is funding this. And I'd like for us to talk for a bit about the project itself. 
how how it got uh, seeded and what its aims and goals are and anything else you'd like to talk about regarding it. And either one of you can go ahead and start. You want to go ahead, Deanna? I want to start. Oh, no, you okay. go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, kind of where I think about it starting, and Deanna, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, we had that um, email connection and started talking and, you know, it, it's almost like we had these dreams developing about how might we go about doing something along these lines. And Deanna helped me think through how I could do design work in my research um, around privacy and restorative space and that sort of thing. And then I had the opportunity to teach a class um, inside a correctional facility, which I do actually each year, but this time had the opportunity to have the course be about the intersection between restorative justice and design. And um, Deanna and I um, co-taught that class. And um, really in the, in the course of the preparations and um, Deanna's relationship with the Fetzer Institute, realized that there was something really there where we could be more actively engaging um, incarcerated individuals, restorative justice practitioners, and correctional administrators and other justice stakeholders, including social workers, since that's the field that I'm coming out of um, for my education right now, ways to engage them in actually doing design work. And we needed to um, find ways in which to do that, ways to teach about design, ways to teach about restorative justice, and to actually have a way to get people doing design concepts. And so we could test some of that in our class uh, that we taught in the correctional facility that also included um, college students in it. And wanted to really kind of take it further to have, a, have access to a wider audience and test more tools with more people, um, see what kind of designs people came up with when they um, brought together restorative justice and design and start capturing that and start analyzing what are the components of restorative justice design. Um, how does it, what does it look like towards people with a particular interest in getting incarcerated people to be kind of at the forefront of that kind of conversation and the forefront of that design. And so we started crafting this project that would give us different ways to do that, um, to get all these different stakeholders involved and to develop a toolkit um, for people to use. And with that, I'll turn it over to Deanna and she can speak to it and pick up some of the pieces. Yeah, that, that's perfect, Barb. I, I, you know, Barb and I speak these two languages together. Me as a hardcore, pretty much practicing architect, and her as a, a restorative justice practitioner and social worker. So from, from the design end of things, what Barb's sort of talking about, what we say is this sort of democratization of design being one of the goals of the project, that everybody deserves access to good, healthy design. Everyone should have an opportunity to participate in that. Uh, so the toolkit hopefully is going to give people the tools to do that. Um, I was also amazed at another, I don't know if it was a, something I ever thought was possible. Barb, of course, is very familiar with this, is the, the sort of healing uh, from trauma impacts that the design process itself has. So let's forget about even getting a, a reparative or restorative justice space, but actually the envisioning of it uh, with healing. I mean, I just saw it in our class, uh, the impact it was having on our students. Um, the other goal I hope from, a, from the professional side is that designers and architects who usually design these spaces with this might be able to use our toolkit to go in and actually engage those who live and work inside those institutions. Uh, I want to be clear that I do not design prisons or jails. I, I refuse to do them. I won't participate in them, but I feel like if I can at least help with this sort of grassroots effort to maybe get some voices from the inside out. I can help maybe change how people are looking at it and that architects can go into institutions and start to engage the, the people who are there. Uh, so those are, and, and hopefully dehumanize those within. That's, that's a big piece as well. Uh, as we know, most people inside the institution are not considered human. So those are, those are some of my personal and professional goals for the project. Mm. And I would just add, if I quickly could, that you know, the culmination of the project is going to be a toolkit. 
um, with suggestions about how to do design work with a variety of different populations that will be um, accessible to anybody who would want it. So it will be a, a tangible pro product at the end so that um, yeah, it can just be used um, widely. Now, are, is there going to be a website for this particular project that people can access? It's, um, I, I know that you each have your own individual um, websites, but do you have plans to have a hub for people to check in and, and to tap into what you're up to with this particular project, which is again uh, called Designing Justice, Designing Spaces, Imagining an Alternative Future for Justice Architecture. We, um, we will, Molly, we will have a website. Uh, you can reach us. I mean, hopefully if you're not on our list, you can reach us at info at designingjustice.com. Uh, Is that right, Barb? <laughs> it's, it's, yep. it's just designingjustice.com. So you can email us there because once the website's done, which is the goal of, you know, really one of the end goals of the grant, uh, you will be able to access these toolkits. You'll be able to download them for free. Uh, our hope also is that you can, you can experiment with things. You can suggest ideas. It's, we're never going to come up with all the ways to do this. You might have your own ideas and, and suggestions, and it will be a place to have dialogue about that so we can make the toolkit even better. Hmm, great. I, wa I want to talk a moment about um, the aspect of where we've been in the recent past in the United States with architecture. Uh, not just, of course, as it concerns criminal justice, but just in general, and the climate that it has created um, for us individually and collectively in that we no longer have extended families. We have our little box cars that we go to our, our jobs in, usually by ourselves. Uh, hopefully we're carpooling, but more often than not, you see people driving by themselves, coming home to... Um, maybe even just living by themselves. So we, we have uh, a very compartmentalized and seemingly isolatory setup that um, I'm wondering how you both feel that affects uh, our current um, climate um, as it concerns, of course, restorative justice but, and, and, and restorative, creating restorative spaces. But just in general, what, how, how do we... Um, unwind that climate, that, that setup that we've created that feels pretty tight and, and limiting and also isolating. Go ahead, either one of you. And, Barb, do you want to say something first? Sure. I don't know quite how to respond to how to actually unwind it, but you know, I immediately start thinking about how restorative justice you know, is really a relational approach to um, justice, but also to daily life. And so I think it really does challenge us to think about how do we live our lives in a way that's more about relationships, um, while at the same time recognizing that sometimes you need to step away from relationships and need that time away. Um, and I, I think that that way of living makes it really easy to just cut out people when something has something bad has happened or something has done something someone has done something wrong and makes it really easy to send people off to a prison and forget about them while they're away. And I I'm also thinking about in the um class that we taught in spring, the first one we did on restorative justice and design and then also the one I'm doing this spring, there's there is really this component of how does what we're talking about with re restorative design relate into social justice issues and the wider social life that we have. And so, you know, thinking about the issues related to million dollar blocks where research is showing that there are certain blocks in our major cities where million dollars is spent every year to incarcerate their populations and that these are the um, blocks that are also um, have questionable land use, are cut off from the rest of the city, um, a lot of public housing, um, industrial use, and that sort of thing. So I, I'm not directly um, you know, answering the question of compartmentalization, um, but definitely speaking that when we talk about these issues, we, we have to be looking at our larger way of living in society. Mm. 
Great. Thank you. And Deanna, did you want to respond to that at all? I can say some, I think, you know, what all the points Barbara made are great. I mean, it is part of our course where we, we do talk about the isolationist um, policies, planning policies that have been made that we are all suffering from, you know, whether it be the sort of isolation of, of neighborhoods and the ghettos, uh, the location of sewer treatment plants and freeways that cut them in half, a uh, tower in the parks, you know, we, we understand that do, doing those things has created a lot of devastation. Uh, there are things happening now uh, and have been for a little bit while in new urbanism where people are just like, okay, we want people of varying incomes to live in the same neighborhood. How do we create policies to do that? We want walkable streets where people meet their neighbors and aren't always getting in their cars and leaving. So it requires a sort of medium density environment. You know, we want to create transit-oriented development so people take public transport. So there are efforts to do that because it's financially sustainable, socially sustainable, and environmentally sustainable. Um, but it's a slow process and our infrastructure, uh, our old infrastructure isn't set up for that and our justice infrastructure isn't set up for that and that we have giant courthouses at the edge of the city that you, everyone has to go to and rather than embedding uh, spaces for justice in our communities that are familiar and places where we can go to, to manage conflict resolution. So it's really, a, you know, the architecture piece and the urban design piece is a part of a much larger uh, approach that we have to take. And I, I think this sort of cross-disciplinary work, starting to learn how each other thinks, is really the only way we're going to begin to, to break down and to make those changes because it will take all of us working at, in, from every angle we can imagine to manifest that change. Uh, I personally am looking to live in a co-housing development, which I think would be a great restorative environment to live in. So those kinds of things, I think, are, would be really helpful. Mm. I, it makes me think of uh, the climate and the actual setup of a courtroom, of course, and uh, on a real basic level, when you walk in, you know, what your experience is is certainly um, an us-and-them environment. And so do, you, do either of you feel in some ways that um, even when we can't rearrange the entire base structure, there's ways in which we can tweak it that are simpler than we might think? What, what do you think about that? Do either of you have thoughts on that? Can, can we do simple, simple revisions such as perhaps, you know, obviously we can't, tear down a courtroom and re rebuild it necessarily, and maybe we can, <laughs> but, you know, um, what can we do with some of the spaces that we have at hand? Um, do we pull up the chairs, you know, that are, are nailed into the floor, and instead of having aisles that have, you know, victim and offender um, representatives on each, uh, have like a circle and um, an ability for people to see each other better and uh, if they want to and just changing the climate a little bit where we can in that way. I think there's a lot of possibilities in that way and I think even making those kinds of changes can um, start indirectly challenging assumptions that we make about justice and maybe open the conversation up. And you know, I think rearranging chairs becomes a simple thing when you think about courtrooms, there's a definite hierarchy in that the judge is on the bench and then everyone else is on the floor. So actually putting people just on the same level can make a big difference. And there's also um, things that you can do with color. Um, research shows that nature is really important for how people feel. So actually giving people access to nature through plants inside or being mindful of what views are outside of windows. Um, can make a big difference for people as well. Um, you know, whether you have soft materials or whether it's all hard. So there, there's things, definitely things like that that can be done. Mm -hmm. Now, now, Deanna, I know that, that you have particularly um, designed a space, at least one space that I'm aware of, maybe more, for restorative justice for Oakland youth in, in Oakland, California. And of course, we mentioned Fanya Davis earlier. Um, our friend and colleague who, who she and, and her team are doing extraordinary work over there. Um, 
and in partnership with you as well. So just can you give us a snapshot of that, at least that one space that I've seen a, a photograph of that looks, looks just extraordinary. And it was included in the invitation email that many of you received. Tell us a little bit yeah, more was, about how that, how that process went. You know, it, it really is a process. It's all about your process. Um, I think with, with our joy, um, they had very low budget. I guess most people have a very low budget. So part of our process was just to get, just to look, if you saw the before photo, it was pretty grim. You know, the, the space that they had, uh, had moldy carpet, uh, their bookshelves were all broken and falling down, uh, the ceiling tiles were sagging. I mean, it, it's a typical kind of space and it, and it's sort of an inner city school. And that has, shows no respect for the process going on within or the people who are going to use that space. So we helped them to get a grant, a, a pretty large grant for their program, and, and we had them put a piece in for design and construction. And that's the way that the model that we've been using to date that seems to work. It's really creating a sort of holistic model. And we've been getting grants to do spaces like that using this approach. So it's, it's worked pretty well so far. And then we use some of our contacts as much as we can to get um, free materials or donated materials. For that project we were able to get donated carpeting. And really what we did was very, very simple. was just to replace the finishes they had, uh, help them lay out the space so that it worked well for all this. Because it was a multi-purpose space. They had to do circles there. The program uh, officer had to be in there. They had, they had to be able to have one-on-one -on -one conversations uh, with victims and offenders. They had to have an art table and a section. We tried to help with lighting, with you know, adding nature into the space, like Barb was mentioning. Uh, the views were tricky. We couldn't get the bars off the window. That would have been nice. But at the end of the day, um, you know, Yejide, who was running the program at the time, said, you know, this space really felt like a sanctuary for us. Uh, it was very calming for the youth when they would come in. And she was so grateful to have it. And at the, that point, it was one of the nicer spaces in the school, so everybody wanted to try and use it. And they had to try and keep it designated just for peacemaking, which I think can be difficult when resources are low. So uh, I, I'm sure and I know that it, it helped, uh, helped their program. Um, and fortunately the program is struggling now, so I don't know how much they're still able to use that space. But it was, a really, it was the first project that we did, and I'll, I'll really never forget them. Uh, they were wonderful clients, and they gave, gave a, a, you know, a young, passionate designer a chance to, to uh, investigate restorative space. Mm. And you're also working on a space in Syracuse. And uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But I, I want to just take a moment to welcome anyone who is joining us still tonight. We are in conversation with Barb Tose and Deanna Van Buren. And they have a project that has just been funded by the Fetzer Institute called Designing Justice, Designing Spaces. We're talking about creating restorative spaces. And I also want to mention, too, it, many of you, of course, know about Barb's book, The Little Book of Restorative Justice for People in Prison, Rebuilding the Web of Relationships, which um, at some point before we close tonight, I'd like to go into a bit with you, Barb. Um, I'd like to open up also to the circle. If you have a question or a comment from here on out tonight, please press 1 on your telephone keypad um, to join the dialogue. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and start out too with, with a question from Michael who um, asks if you can talk specifically about how architecture changes the perception or stigma looking from the outside in of people with a criminal record or who, who are in prison. And to what extent is the image of the outcasts of society influenced by the spaces they occupy? What, is, what are the studies and data? And how much of the problem is space? Thank you, Michael, for that question. I'll go ahead and either one of you to take that. I, I can say a few things. I'd also be great to hear Barb's thoughts on that. That's an amazing question. It's a really good question. Uh, and I have not done that research. I don't I think it's hard to believe that when someone looks at a prison, their thoughts about you know who's inside 
are reinforced. Um, and the, the things that I have done the most research on are really talking to people in social services programs like say, uh, Planned Parenthood and there's a program uh, here, Homeless Prenatal Program or any, any sort of program where you're really dealing with a, a low income population. And what's interesting is how people feel differently about themselves when the space is thoughtful, uh, when the space is actually nourishing. And you know, an example is um, we're taking, speaking with Martha Ryan from Homeless Prenatal. She said they had some new spaces that were really beautifully designed. They had color, they had light, they were spacious. And she said to me, you know, people feel hopeful when they come here. Um, they have stopped. Fights used to break out in their old space, and they don't they don't break out anymore. So it's been a radical transformation for her clients who are coming in on how they feel about themselves, how they feel about the situation that they're in. And that was just the space. Nothing else changed. The program didn't change. The services they provided actually expanded because they had more space to expand. Uh, but, but it was really just the space that had that impact. So I, it can be quite powerful. It can be quite powerful. Hmm. I'm you. thinking about, um, I mean, it is a really good question especially you know, looking from the outside in. <clears throat> and I'm immediately drawn to an anecdote that one of our incarcerated students last spring said that um, in the Philadelphia County Courthouse, it's many stories high. And the higher of the floor you go, the more serious the crime you were involved in. And he talked about how you know, going up the elevator, floor going up all the floors, and when getting off, you know, feeling bad for himself, you know, feeling his stomach sink, so to speak, as he's going up, but also recognizing that when he stepped off the elevator that many floors up, it was almost as if the staff that were there working in the halls would go, whoa, what did you do to have to be this high up in the courthouse? So just the, the floor that he was on led to some kind of judgment or questioning from the staff who saw him being on that floor. And just also thinking about it, it's hard to, when you are driving up to a prison and it's all cement and brick and barbed wire and fences, I mean, it's hard not to think of someone as dangerous, as um, worthy of being thrown away, of, the, of those sorts of things. But if you would drive up on a place that um, reflects respect, engagement, that belief that someone can change, you know, you're going to think differently about people. And one of the things that we've had um, students do is visualizing values. What does respect look like? What does belief and transformation look like? What does accountability look like spatially? And it really starts getting at that question of if we would design spaces, that reflect those values, we are going to think differently about the people that are in them, and the people that are in those spaces are going to feel differently about themselves. And with the research that I've been doing, um, particularly around privacy, which I'm using as a proxy for restorative space, and actually having women, incarcerated women design certain kinds of spaces, they're designing these spaces that suggest that they are worthy, that they're confident, that they're capable of change. And they're all spaces that have um, gardens or parks or beaches or some kind of access to nature or home-like settings. And it's those kinds of settings that they believe um, they're they can show that they're not the people that people say they are. I have, an imp I have a question that has been burning here for a moment around <laughs> why, why is it that we correlate, we seem to correlate, well, not, not myself, but in general there seems to be the idea that if we, if we have a park setting or if we have a space that is, is humane and maybe even beautiful, like such as in Norway, um, the way that they they've set up their their system there the, of of prisons, uh, um, th and there probably are other examples. Why would we correlate that with somehow going light on um, I guess on the punishment of uh, I mean we we know that we're we're moving from from a punitive system to a restorative one, but 
why is it so scary to people and why is there a tendency to criticize um, that that by creating spaces that could restore, which is ultimately what we're all trying to do anyway, right? I mean, that, or at least we're saying that that's what we're trying to do, even with the current system and the past system. Um, so why is there that tendency then to, you know, to make it seem like we're, we're coddling these, you know, people. What what kind of mindset is that? Uh, well, I think um, people can't see the punishment in that, and I think for our society, that's where we go first. Is that when there's a crime, you need to have the punishment. And you know, when you think about restorative justice, it's saying let's not start from the place of punishment. Let's start from the place of attending to people's needs, victims' needs, and then we would be saying, let's now create the environments in which people can actually face those needs and do something about it. I, I w- visited the, healing, the Women's Healing Lodge in the prairies of Canada, which is this beautiful outdoor um, correctional facility. It looks like it has a little main street. I, I remember standing outside and, you know, I'm in a prison and I can feel the wind in my hair. And there were picnic tables in the front of their little apartments. There were decks on the back. And I asked, you know, it was beautiful. And I asked the women, you know, what are your favorite places here? Well, the fact that they had their own bedroom in their apartment and the deck out the back that looked out into the woods. And I asked them, are you still in a prison? And they're like, oh, yeah, we're still in a prison. I mean, we can't go where, wherever we want to go. We can't leave. We still understand that we're confined. Um, so they were still having that experience of separation from community, but definitely in this much more respectful um, kind of environment. So I think it's possible for both to coexist. You know, we can ask questions about whether they should, um, but I think we just as, as a culture have trouble seeing beyond punishment and suffering. Mm-hmm. Thank I think you, it's Deanna. our greatest hurdle for that. Um, I think it's our greatest hurdle that that uh, people who commit crimes are evil and bad and should be punished and they deserve what they get and our intention always manifests in our in our built environment. You know, people don't often think about their built environment so much, but you're in buildings every day, all day, exposed to them all the time, and you know they reflect the values of society almost always. So um, I think it's going to be hard for us to have restorative spaces for our justice system if we don't actually change the way that we view. Uh, we view it and and how we um, how we begin to uh, set it up with a diff- with a new set of values. Mm. You know, and one can of I the add pom- another thing. Oh. oh, please do, Barb. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Um, our our project is very much focused on um, prisons and incarceration, and I think it's really important, though, to talk about victims as well because Mm -hmm. there's also questions to be asking about what are the spaces that victims need while Mm -hmm. they're, um, you know, immediately after the crime, while they're going through the justice system to um, work through experiences um, after things have gone through the justice system and, you know, what does restorative space mean to them? What do they say they need as well? So while our particular project um, isn't looking at that, that is part of just a bigger vision of this as well. Mm-hmm. That's such a great point. I'm so glad you raised that because really, um, as, as it has been, um, when I think of, of somebody who has been the re- on the receiving end of harm, they really don't have an outlet or a support system. I mean, they, do, they have VOMA, right, the victim, uh, or the, not VOMA, but uh, each state has a victim's, advocacy group, I believe. Um, but, but other than that, the way that our systemic architecture is um, from day one until perhaps the, um, the offender is released or however it plays out, there's really laws in place that, that keep us apart from, you know, some victims may not be willing uh, or interested in, you know, in coming together in a restorative setup um, and that's that's perfectly acceptable, and it certainly isn't about forcing anybody, right? But um, the way that we can create conditions and architecture and setups for them is certainly important. 
and 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 a leading um, piece of this, isn't it, Barb? Yeah, I mean, we have to be having the victim as part of the conversation in restorative justice generally, but then also making sure that we're we're asking these same questions about architecture with them. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, um, in our the the peacemaking project in Syracuse, uh, some of the people we're inviting to the community engagement pieces are the victims' advocacy rights groups uh, to make sure that they are you know, a part of that vision. That's such a key thing to be inclusive in this dialogue too. I bet you probably have um, listening projects and, and other things set up as you go. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to break into um, opening it up to the circle at hand here. We have some questions. Um, I want to welcome you. Gabriel, you're live. Oh, hi. Uh, thanks. Um, yeah, I'd, I don't really have a question. I just wanted to express uh, appreciation for the whole conversation because uh, it, it really uh, excites me to hear um, this happening and uh, um, looking at architecture. And I'm pretty new to being a RJ, restorative justice practitioner, um, just a couple of years into the work now. But um, when I consider the criminal justice system's uh, architecture, uh, then I, you, you can't look at that without considering the, the originating intention and what those structures are based on um, and all the symbolism of, of the, the bench and the little, uh, the little fence separating the public from the court kind of approaching the, the bench. And these things, I don't know how much folk listening have um, looked into admiralty law, but they all come from basically the laws of of the sea and from banking and uh mm. and from from the piracy that brought colonialism here to this continent and so to hear people talk about actually transforming spaces um it's really exciting to me to hear bringing it back into the common jurisdiction of people you know repairing harm in community amidst people and and in a kind of shared power kind of context so yeah, I don't really have a question. I just wanted to thank you each and everyone uh, involved for making this happen. I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Hmm. Thank, you. thank you, Gabriel. So let's field another question here. Uh, we have a question from Jeanette. Thank you, Jeanette. She asks, can you please share specific best practices and can you refer to empirical evidence? And also she asks about um, funding and making money being a restorative justice practitioner um, and any other stats or anything you'd like to share about what, what we're seeing um, as the wave of transformation of the system is happening as we speak. Thank you, Jeanette, for that question. There's so much there. <laughs> um, with empirical evidence, <laughs> Um, is I, I would is it empirical evidence about design or empirical evidence about restorative justice? Yeah, I'm making a clarification question. Yeah, yeah, I'm I don't know the answer to that one, but I would say, Jeanette, I noticed that you may be here live with us. If you're interested in asking and uh, clarifying that question, please feel free to press one on your telephone keypad. But I would say go with, uh, in general, um, empirical evidence such as you know, rates of recidivism, evidence that uh, there's cost savings, um, you know, the things that are, that are important data points when we, when we go to create political will and convince people that this is so definitely worthy of funding, these things are, in any way, whether it's um, the important work that you're doing or projects like Our Joy um, or, or related. Sure. I can speak a bit to the RJ research. And then, Deanna, do you want to take some of the design research? Yeah, yeah. I can do it real quick. Okay. I mean, the, with the restorative justice research, there's actually a really great um, systematic review out there called Restorative Justice, the Evidence. 
by um, Larry Sherman and Heather Strang. And um, one of the things that they really find is that what's successful totally depends on who the people are that are involved, under what conditions things are happening, and kind of the larger context. And but just kind of broad, broadly speaking, I mean, there is research on different forms of restorative justice that you know that range from victim offender dialogue in like juvenile cases to victim offender dialogue in crimes of violence to um, what I loosely call group dialogue processes, which are kind of like discussion-based groups where people from the outside come into a correctional facility and have conversation, um, and then also. Um, restorative justice living units that are occurring in some correctional facilities. And they are finding that some of them are um, leading to a reduction um, in offending or at least a reduction in um, serious offending. Also finding that some of them, um, they are finding evidence that it improves victim empathy, um, understanding of harms, um, kind of thinking around like reduced criminal, what they call criminal thinking, um, those sorts of things. And also finding, um, you know, just increased satisfaction with the justice process. I know in, um, ju when victim offender dialogue is done in juvenile cases, um, restitution agreements that are made are often completed at much higher rates than when they're just um, assigned by a probation officer or a judge. So. There, there is some evidence out there, as with any kind of research, you know, you have to, you know, really look at research methods and that sort of stuff. Not, there's only been um, a few randomized controlled trials, and those are the ones that the um, Sherman and Strang report really talk about. Um, so there is some evidence, but, you know, as always, more needs to be done um, for it. And um, I haven't looked very much at the cost effectiveness um, kind of research, but I think that the Sherman and Strang report has that in it as well. Mm -hmm. so I'd like to just add um, a great quote from uh, District Attorney Stanley Garnett here in Colorado where I reside, where we just passed a law called the Restorative Justice Pilot Project. And, and he, uh, although there is not um, absolute data because, of course, it's very difficult to project what the cost savings would be exactly when you prevent someone from being sentenced to um, jail or prison. Um, there's extreme evidence of uh, a lot of money being saved. And he says, um, this is not just another panacea. It's definitely a viable option, and it should be an option for, for every system. Um, it saves uh, a lot of time and processing, um, judicial time and processing, that is, um, and otherwise. And, and not only that, as many of us know here, it, it um, is an opportunity for something quite extraordinary to occur um, and even just for uh, the first steps towards some semblance of making sense of, of uh, of the original harm and, and um, moving forward and facing a cause and effect and some of the cycles that are created by, um, by conflict and crime. So um, I, I'd like to, to just um, go back to you, Deanna, if I might for a moment around um, the Peacemaking Center that we mentioned a little bit ago in Syracuse. And um, I know you were gonna. I know you were gonna speak to to the the data and to that original question too. So certainly weave that in if you want to. Um, but I really want to make sure we t take time to hear about that center in Syracuse a little bit more, and also this vision of creating restorative justice centers as a new prototype for justice architecture. And I, I know that really in this conversa conversation we've been already covering that. But speak a little bit more if there's a need to around the specifics of the prototype. Sure, sure. Well, I, I can speak first to the Syracuse project. And, and the exciting thing about this project is um, the Center for Court Innovation will 
be bringing um, indigenous peacemaking practices into the traditional justice system. So it's a diversion program like many restorative justice programs, but it will really be more around a peacemaking, Native American peacemaking model. Uh, it will be in the near west side neighborhood of Syracuse. And we have won a grant from the federal government, a Burn Justice Innovation Grant, and it includes um, uh, part of the budget for design and construction. And so we're going to be doing a very heavy community engagement piece around it. Again, I was mentioning before about process, where we will be um, having, I think it's just in a month, we're going to have the community come together. I will be using some of the toolkits that Barb and I put together to get the community's vision for what a peaceful uh, space is to them so that they have a voice. We will code and analyze that data after that, and we will use that in terms of the design moving forward. But we'll also do something called the Peacemaking Palette, which is a process I developed that uses the Peacemaking Circle to get more design input. You know, people come, they bring a material, a color, a texture, and they tell story around that. And they put it in the center of the circle so that at the end we have a kind of a palette or even like a sample board for, for the architects and designers, if there are any on the line, that we can then use to create a space that is very specific to that community. Uh, so that is you know, really for us an important part of it. And in terms of, of data that we hope to get out of this project, is they have a similar program in Brooklyn where they do not have a designated space for that program. And our hope is to be able to understand what is the impact of this design process that's intended to help us create a more restorative space that's very bespoke and very specific, but also uh, just to have a space at all in a community for that. Does it make a difference? Is it the same either way? Uh, my, my thinking is that it will have an impact. So you know, it's, it's, there's not a lot of research done on these kinds of spaces because they're very new. There is some research done on our punitive spaces, but not a lot, and, and we call it evidence-based design. Uh, evidence-based design has been primarily done in healthcare and education, not much done on our punitive spaces. Uh, the work of, I think, Jay Farbstein and Melissa Farling and, and Wenner just recently, I can't remember his first name, Dr. Wenner's book, uh, which we use in our, our class, who have looked at some of the impacts of space on incarcerated men and women and the high levels of stress it causes. Um, so, you know, there's work to be done there, but they're, they're not, there's not a lot of funding and there's not a lot of will and it's not very easy to get access to those spaces to do that research. So uh, that sort of is the, the empirical evidence, but the restorative justice spaces that I hope to be doing more of um, the vision for the restorative justice centers have been there from the beginning. Uh, a new type of building in our communities, and really it's a return to an old building type. There are communities around the world that had buildings and spaces for restorative justice. There were Faranui's in New Zealand, uh, palaver huts in Liberia, Hogans in different Native American communities. That those were spaces where people went to resolve conflict. And we don't have, we've lost those spaces. This happens as, as over millennia, I guess. But mm -hmm. uh, it's time to get them back. Um, and you know, speaking with my partners, even here in Oakland, uh, sort of justice practitioners, the you know, National um, Council on Crime and Delinquency and Community Work, they are, they want those spaces. Mm -hmm. We have desire. Uh, they need them to stand um, and to imagine on a skyline to see a restorative justice center as a different kind of icon to our courthouse, which I think you can all imagine the columns and the big pediments and you know our, the big stone building, a very different kind of building that really embodies peacemaking. I really embody the fact that the community is involved in this process. It's not about professionals and the sort of European model. So that will happen, I'm sure. We're getting closer all the time. All the I am time. So, so I'm so grateful that you brought up the examples from, you know, humanity's historical perspective and cultural perspectives. I mean, there's so many examples of spaces that you mentioned the Hogan and, um, uh, you know, all of these these varying examples of, uh, and I, I think of uh, of the Famble Talk process uh, with our friends over in Sierra Leone, and you know, somehow the TV kind of replaced the fire. Um, where storytelling and other community gatherings would happen. 
Um, so yeah. it, it's just really important, I think, isn't it, for us to remember <laughs> together that we're re-implementing something that has already been very much a part of human history. And yeah. you two are spearheading something extraordinary. And I, I want to congratulate you also on this, in, uh, this great article that just came out that I want to make sure our, our circle knows about. Um, it was published online at the Business Insider. It's called This Radical New Prison Design Could Prevent Prisoners from Coming Back. It's gotten quite a circulation of, of tens of thousands of uh, reads. And I believe it was originally published in Architecture Daily, and it mentions your work, Deanna. Um, and it's about uh, a, a restorative prison architecture, and it has some really neat pictures. Um, again, that's posted at Business Insider. It's by Rory Stott from Architecture Daily, and it's called This Radical New Prison Design Could Prevent Prisoners from Coming Back. Um, and I just I want to close out tonight by inviting the, the two of you again to just tell us uh, uh, anything more about what's coming up for you both and how to stay in touch with you because I'm sure there's quite a few folks that would like to continue to hear from you and, and hear how things are going. Mark, Either one. Sure. Go ahead, Deanna. Okay. okay. Um, I... Um, I would, you know, Barb and I are going to be starting to set up um, a series of uh, workshops in, in different prisons and jails across the country uh, so that we can start to test the toolkit uh, and we're going to condense it into a two-day workshop. Uh, we'll be also doing it with um, at conferences with practitioners. Uh, I'm going to be going to architecture firms, uh, large ones uh, who design prisons and design jails to help them uh, actually go in and actually speak with, with incarcerated men and women. So we're kind of rolling ourselves out despite our uh, slight introversion. We're hitting the ground running and, and trying to reach out to as many people as possible. I also just heard from the Institute for the Future, uh, which is an organization here that looks at the future systems for all kinds of models from climate change to, to justice. And they also will be supporting us in, in testing our, our toolkit. So uh, that is some of the stuff that we're going to be doing. And, and we're looking for stakeholders, people who are interested in engaging with us around the development of the tools, might want to use them. Um, and again, you, you can reach us at info at designingjustice.com. Uh, I just want to say, excuse, I'm sorry, Deanna, but I just want to make sure people hear that email. It's info at designingjustice.com, um, I-N-F-O at designingjustice.com. Exactly. And Barb, did you have any closing comments tonight that you'd like um, to add? I would just, a few. Um, just as far as the evidence base, the environmental psychology field has a lot of research on the impact of environments on human behavior. Um, and there has been a lot of research in the medical field about the design of hospitals as well. And um, kind of indirectly what we're doing in this project too is kind of looking at can, is some of that research relevant for the justice world as well. As far as some of the things that I have coming up this spring, I will be teaching a restorative justice and design course in a women's county jail. Um, and very similar to what we did last spring, but um, a little bit different just because it's a different facility. Um, and really looking forward to that and actually adding some things about how do we, about creating restorative justice assessment tools. So the class will actually be creating some assessment tools that people can use to do environmental analysis. And then I'll be continuing on with um, finishing up my research right now, which I had incarcerated women do some design work around privacy and notions of restorative space and looking forward to um, kind of finalizing that. And if anyone's interested, um, I do have um, a handout of a research poster which kind of gives some preliminary results and has some of the designs that they created in it. So um, if people want to see some of that, um, I can definitely make that available. And Barb, I'd be happy to distribute that um, if it's a, you know a document or a PDF, however, whatever form it's yeah, in, yeah. Um, on our mailing okay. list. And um, yeah, we we really like to create a resource base for 
our listeners, our participants, and we hope that this uh, is an educational space that also helps connect people to the things that they're wondering about, getting you know data and and um, tools into people's hands. <laughs> so and I be, I would add. Because um, I don't think Deanna has mentioned her written piece on this new typology of restorative justice architecture, and that would be a great resource to have available as well. Yeah, so we'll I'm, make I'm happy to get that out. And um, also the, I, a document I've started on uh, creating restorative spaces in schools. So those can so be we'll, made available. We'll make sure to connect people with that on uh, the next email round that goes out in this next week previous to our conversation next week, next Thursday. Uh, if you're interested in making sure that you're on the email list, if you're not already, um, you can go to restorativejusticeontherise.com to sign up. We don't share your information. We are so grateful for your participation um, and encourage you, again, to get involved in the conversation. Submit your questions in, in the registration process. You need to sign up every week. We don't want to assume that you want to be on every single call every week. Um, but do join us in the future. And also, just again, thank you so much, Barb and Deanna, for joining us tonight on Restorative Justice on the Rise. And we really look forward to hearing more about how this project goes. And um, just good luck with it. And looking forward to, uh, to staying in touch and thank you everyone again. Have a great night.